continue to trust you and obey you. We pray all this for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 1987, Ken Griffey Jr. was drafted by the Seattle Mariners, and in 1989, he made his MLB debut. Here's a picture of a young Ken Griffey Jr. Do you guys remember him? He was a star. I mean, he was, he was incredible. And during his rookie season, he made $68,000. Not $68,000 a game, but $68,000. And from here, he went on to become one of the greatest baseball players in MLB history, making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. In 2010, he retired from baseball, playing his final seasons with the Cincinnati Reds. But if you look at the payroll for the Cincinnati Reds, you will find something quite interesting. So if you want to put that uh, picture up. So he retired in 2010, didn't play a game in 2011. But in 2011, they paid him $3.5 million, making him the second highest player on the team, even though he didn't play on the team. 2012, they paid him $3.5 million. If you go down to 2023, you see this year they paid him $3.5 million, making him the fourth highest paid player on the team, even though he hasn't played on the team in over a decade. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up to make a very simple point. The point is that contracts matter. Contracts matter. Contracts have far, long-term, far-reaching implications in life. To enter a a bad contract is to invite pain and suffering into your life, and the Reds are feeling that pain and suffering right now. To enter a good contract is to invite clarity and blessing into your life. In Genesis chapter 15, God enters a contract with Abram. The biblical word is covenant. God enters into a covenant with Abram, one of the most important covenants in all the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes great promises to Abram. And in Genesis chapter 15, God formalizes and clarifies these promises with a covenant. And through the covenant, we learn much about the character of God. We learn much about who God is and how he relates to his people. And we learn much about the nature of the gospel. How does God save us? What is the nature of our salvation as Christians? So there's much here for us to learn. And this morning, there are three parts of the story I want to draw your attention to. The first is the question. The second is the promises, and the third is the character of God. So we have the the question, the promises, and the character of God. Let's start with the question. Typically, scholars divide the promises that God made to Abram into three categories. Category one, physical descendants, that God promised Abram that he would have physical descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. Category number two is the promise of blessing or redemption. Some people call it redemption. God says to Abram, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Category number three is land, that God would give land to Abram and his descendants. And this is where we pick it up in verse seven. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So here, he is saying what he has already said to Abram. I'm gonna give you this land, verse eight. But he, being Abram, said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? So he hears this great promise that he's going to receive land from the Lord. And he says, Lord God, how do I know I will possess it? I find this question fascinating for several reasons. One of them being that in Genesis 15, 1 through 5, you see that Abram is wrestling with fear and he's wrestling with doubt. He's wrestling with fears about the future and doubts about God. But by the time we get to verse 6, Abram has landed. 
His confidence is God. He has believed the promise that God has made to him. Yet in verse 8, he appears to be doubting God again. He says, how do I know I will possess this land? So what's going on in verse 8? Well, this is not cynical doubt in the heart of Abram. This is the fight for faith. This is the fight to put his confidence in God. Abram is saying in verse 8, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Now, why did Abram struggle to believe the promises of God? I mean, why didn't, why didn't he just accept the promises of God right away? Well, there are many reasons, but one of them is the size and the scope of these promises. Uh, the kindness of God in making these promises. The grace of God in making these promises, it's overwhelming. The size and the scope of these promises is overwhelming when you consider it. For example, if, if I told you, if I told you, or if someone came up to you and said, I promise to give you $100, that would not be a difficult promise to believe. If someone said, I'm going to give you $100, that would be a relatively easy promise to believe. $100 is not life-changing. It's not a huge amount of money. It's, it's a blessing, but it's not that much money. Now, if someone came up to you and says, I promise to give you $100 billion, how are you going to respond to that promise? You're going to think to yourself, what are you talking about? Do you have $100 billion? No way. And if you did, why would you give it to me? So the, the greater the promise, the more your mind begins to think and wonder, how is this actually going to play out? Obviously, it would be much easier to believe the promise that someone is going to give you $100 versus $100 billion. Now, think about the promises God made to Abram. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. If the promise was you're going to have a few kids and you're going to be a blessing to your community, that would not be difficult to believe. But God is saying to Abram, all the families on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Sin has brought, has brought, has brought death into the world. It has cursed all the families on earth. But through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all the families on planet earth. What a promise. Or Genesis 15, 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. To give you this land. He says, I'm going to give you a country. Not 10 acres along the ocean. That would be real nice. But he says, I'm going to give you this land, the promised land. You are going, you and your descendants will possess this land. And Abram says, you're going to give me a country? What in the world? You're going to give me this whole land? The promise that God makes to Abram is you will possess the land. The problem is that 10 small nations already possess the land. These nations, you can read about in, verse, in verses 19 through 21. They have armies. They have weapons. None of them worship God. And they don't want to give the land to Abram. They're a pagan group of people. And Abram is looking at all these people. And they have armies. They have soldiers, they have weapons, and he's like, how am I going to get this land? How is this going to work? Lord, how will I know I will possess it? Verse 9, we see God's response. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So God gives him a grocery list, go get these animals, and come back. Abram is a man of action, so he gets the animals. Verse 10, so he brought all these to him. Cut them in half. Pause right there. I wrote in my notes this week, that escalated quickly. It went from just go get the animals to cut it. He cuts them in half? Why are you cutting them in half? Have you ever cut an animal in half before? Probably, maybe some of you have. I don't know. But probably a lot of you have not cut an animal in half. This is incredible. 
He brought all these animals to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. It's easy to read past verse 10 and to say that's the Old Testament blood. We get it next verse. We read past it. But we shouldn't do that with verse 10. What's going on in verse 10? Well, three words best describe what's happening in verse 10. The first word is brutal, then costly, then covenant. Brutal, costly, covenant. This is brutal. We are told that Abram cuts these animals in half. These are living mammals. They have blood in their bodies, in their veins, pumping through their bodies. To cut an animal in half is brutal. To take a life, it is brutal. And you think about that for a moment. He does this with these three animals, and then he kills these birds. It is brutal, and it is costly. These are valuable resources. These animals are valuable resources, and yet he cuts them in half. Now, why is this happening? It's happening because God is making a covenant with Abram, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram knew God was entering into a covenant with him. Abram, when he says, go get these animals, Abram says, I know what's happening. God is going to enter into a covenant with me. The custom of the day was to act out the conditions or the curses of the covenant. Today, we, we hire lawyers and we sign pieces of paper. We sign contracts. Back then, you would act out the curses of the covenant. So you would take an animal. Let's just take a, a cow here. Uh, here is a, a cow. God tells Abraham to get a cow. And then you cut that cow in half, however, however you do that. So now it's cut, cut in half. And then you take a ram. Look at this, this friendly ram. And you cut the bad day for this guy. He gets cut in half. And then look at the goat. We have a goat. Oh, it's cute. But it's got to be cut in half, guys. So we cut, it, we cut it in half. And then we have birds. We have a couple of birds. They're not cut in half. But they're part of this whole ceremony. So now you have this bloody aisle. This is, this is the picture that we get. He separates them. And there's blood down the aisle. And during this time period... Two parties, would, they would make a pledge to one another. That maybe it was buying land or they were going to work together on some project or whatever it is. They were going to become allies, whatever it was. And they would lock arms and they would walk down that bloody aisle. And in so doing, they would be saying, if I do not uphold my end of the covenant, may I be cut in half. It was a serious thing to enter into a covenant. It was a brutal thing to enter into a covenant. Yesterday, I did a wedding. Uh, which is the most formal covenant in our culture. And I was doing the ceremony, and for whatever reason, I thought, man, this would really change the feel if there were dead bodies on the ground here. I mean, if there are just dead bodies, people are entering into a covenant. I mean, it, it would really change the feel, the environment, quite a bit. Today, we sign papers, and I'm totally cool with that. That's totally fine to do that. But we can't miss the ancient custom. It is a covenant ceremony. And Abram is expecting God to show up and for somehow Abram and God to walk through this aisle together, walk down the aisle together. But look at verse 11. Birds of prey came, came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. I've been thinking about verse 11 all week long. It is, it is such an obscure verse to me. You get the flow of the story, you see the flow of the story, and then in verse 11 you get this detail. These vultures are coming down. They're trying to get the carcasses, and Abram shoes them away. Okay, back to the story. Now, what's, what's going on in verse 11? Uh, there's, much, there's much debate about what's happening, but what I think is happening for sure is that this is a clue. It's a clue that this, this day is not going the way Abram thought. This is, this is taking a long period of time. 
Presumably in the morning, Abram gets the animals, cuts them in half, and now he's waiting for God to show up. Okay, God, what are we doing? Uh, what's next? He's sitting there. The day is getting hot. Sun is rising. Day is getting hot. Okay, Lord, where are you? Where are you? The birds swoop down. They start to eat the carcasses, and he shoes them away. He sits down. It's hot. Okay, what's happening? Vultures come down. He shoes them away. And then, eventually, the sun is going down, and he falls asleep. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. This is likely induced by the Lord. A deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Scholars say that the phrase great terror is the idea of an all-out panic attack. It is an all-out panic attack. It, It means to be overwhelmed with fear, which is not always a rational thing. It's something that hits you in your emotions. You just feel terrified. You're overwhelmed with fear. And it says darkness descended on him. This is, this is a scary moment for Abram. This is not what Abram was anticipating. And into this fear, God makes Abram five promises. He makes, he makes Abram five promises. This is, the, this is the second part of the story I want you to notice, the promises. And each one of these promises we could explore for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I'm not going to get into all of these, all the details of these promises. That's probably for a different sermon. But I want you to see the five promises that God makes. Verse 13, promise number one. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. He's trying to produce certainty in Abram. Abram is, he's, he's saying, how do I know, Lord, that this is going to happen? He's trying to produce certainty in Abram. He says, know this for certain, Abram. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. This is bad news. 400 years of slavery in Egypt pronounced, pronounced long before this actually happens. 400 years as slaves in Egypt. This is what the book of Exodus is all about, how God delivers his people, the nation of Israel, There's your Israelites from Egypt. So this is bad news. They're going to go into slavery for 400 years and be oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years. Promise number two. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. God says they're not going to get away with it. I will punish Egypt for what they do to my people, and when they leave, they will leave with many possessions. Promise number three. If I'm Abram at this point, I'm wondering to myself, what's going to happen to me? If my offspring are going to go into slavery in a foreign land for 400 years, what's going to happen to me? Life's been pretty good for me. What's going to happen? Verse verse 15. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. You will go into the, the grave in shalom, peace, wholeness, and be buried at a good old age. Number four. Why don't we just, in, why don't we just enter the land now? If I'm Abram, that's what I want. Let's, let's skip this 400 years of slavery thing. Let's just go right around that. Let's not do that. Why don't we just enter the, the land now? Verse 16. In the fourth generation, they will return here. After 400, 400 years, they will return here. Your people, your offspring will, will return to the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Wow. What's happening? The Amorites describe the Canaanite people who occupy the land. 
And part of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land is to use his people as an instrument of judgment, as an instrument of wrath on wickedness. This is part of God's design. This is part of God's plan that gets laid out in the Old Testament, that God would use his people to to punish wickedness on earth. And God says their iniquity, the iniquity of the Amorites, has not yet reached its full measure. Now, some people, when they read this, they respond by saying, God is so judgmental and so cold-hearted, how could God be such a strict judge and just punish all of these people? But I think that's the exact opposite point. The point we should take away from, from verse 16 is that God is outrageously patient. How long would you put up with someone spitting in your face? How long? would you put up with people doing evil to other human beings? I mean, these, these people, they're not just, they aren't, they aren't just living nice lives, minding their own business, trying to have good attitudes, working hard, taking care of their families. This is not what is happening at all. This is blatant rebellion against God. And they had 400 years to turn to God, but they disregarded the patience of God and dove deeper and deeper into sin. And see, God says, I will put up with a certain amount in this life There's some threshold here, and they had not yet reached the threshold. But once they reached the threshold, the judgment of God would come on the Amorites. See, the Amorites and the Canaanites, they offered their children as human sacrifices to the Canaanite gods, just like we do. We offer our children as human sacrifices. We make a sacrifice to the gods of America and put our children to death, just like they did. They practice bestiality, homosexuality, pedophilia, and every type of sexual deviance. And eventually, God's patience ended. God's patience ended, and he gave the land to the nation of Israel, his people. And when I study this passage, I think about verse 16, I cannot help but think about America. How long, how long, Can a nation spit in the face of God? How long can a nation spit on people created in his image? And God put up with it. We are not not to understand what's happening right now, looking looking out out and observing what's happening in our country. We are not to conclude that God is indifferent about what's happening. We are not to abuse the patience of God. I think about what's happening and I think, oh Lord, Please be patient for a little while longer. Please be patient. I mean, the the type of evil, wickedness, sexual deviance, the abuse of children, the ending of human life, it is unacceptable to God. And we are not not to take his patience for granted. Promise number five, verse 18. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give you this land. I give you this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Then in verses 19 through 21, you see the description of the land, the Canaanite people. And all five of these promises are designed to give Abram certainty about the future, certainty, clarity about the future. God says this is what is going to happen. Now, there is one verse I did not read. I skipped over it. But it is one verse that we cannot miss. It is verse 17. And in verse 17, we see the character of God. This is part three. The third thing I want you to observe is the character 
of God. Verse 17 says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. This is what is called a theophany. It comes from two Greek words, which means to show God, to show God. A theophany is when God, who is invisible, shows himself in a unique way, to show God. Moses had the burning bush. I'm not saying that God is a burning bush, but he manifested himself as a burning bush. The Israelites had a pillar of fire to lead them at night. So the Israelites could look up and they saw the pillar of fire. Abram had a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. The truth that we cannot miss is that God alone walks down that aisle. He passes through those animals all alone. He does not go and grab Abram and say, Abram, you're going to walk with me. He says, I will go alone down the aisle. And what we learn from this is that this is a unilateral covenant that God is making to Abram. It is not a bilateral. He does not include Abram. God is saying, I will fulfill my promises regardless of what you do, Abram. He walks down the aisle alone. In other words, God, by going down that aisle alone, God is swearing by himself to fulfill his promises. When you're a kid and you really want someone to know you're telling the truth, what do you do? Like you want, you want someone to know you're telling the truth, what do you do? Pinky swear. You offer the pinky. And if someone else will not respond by giving you their pinky, you know they're lying. And so the pinky swear is a way of trying to, to validate what you're about ready to say. Or as you get older, I heard someone say this the other day, I swear on my grandma's grave that this is true. I swear on my grandma's grave. Or when you go into, court, into a courtroom, when a witness is called, they will put, up their, they'll put their hand on a Bible or whatever, and they'll raise their hand, and they'll be asked the question, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And you're placed under oath. Now, why is that important? Why, why do people have to be put under oath? Why, do people, why does the pinky swear make sense, at least to some degree? Why do people say, I swear in my grandma's grave that this is true? Why do we do this? Why does that make any sense at all? It is because the default condition of the human heart is to lie. Human beings lie. With the pinky swear, what you're saying is that this time I'm really telling the truth. Last time, maybe not. We don't know. This time, I'm going to tell you the truth. We make promises we do not in in intend to keep. We make statements that we know are not true. You don't need to raise your hand or do anything. J just think about this question. When was the last time you lied? When was the last time you told a lie? I mean, some, some people, they lie every day. Every day of their life, they lie. This is the human condition. But the good news about the character of God is that God, not only will God not lie, he, he will not lie, he cannot lie. God cannot lie. That is impossible for a holy God to tell a lie. In verse 17, God then is swearing by himself, not on his grandma's grave, not, not a pinky swear. God is swearing by himself to keep his word. Hebrews 6.13, for when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. So when he walks down that aisle between those dead animals by himself, he is saying to Abram, 
I will keep my promise. And if I don't, let me be cut in half. God would rather be cut in half than break his word. God would rather die than break his word. We break our promises to each other. We break our promises to God. But brothers and sisters, God never breaks his promises to us. He will never, he will never break his word to us. All that he has promised, he will accomplish. 2,000 years later, after God enters into this covenant, this unilateral covenant with Abram, Jesus came into the world. 2,000 years after Abram, Jesus comes into the world. And when Jesus came into the world, the Son of God, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the uncle of Jesus, understood the significance, at least to some degree, of Jesus coming into the world. They understood that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. Luke chapter 1, verse 72, this is what Zechariah says. He, being God, has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So he's trying to understand what's going on, that the Son of God is going to come into the world. What's happening there? He says, God is fulfilling his covenant. God is fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Christ is the seed, the offspring, through whom God will bless the entire world. Christ is the one that Abraham ultimately points to. And when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to provide salvation and blessing to the world. This is why Christmas, the message is joy to the world. The Lord has come. He's come to bring joy and life and blessing to all the families of the earth. He came that we might be forgiven. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, that in Christ you can be forgiven. Though you have sinned and rebelled and spit in the face of God, you can be washed clean by the blood of Christ. All of your sins, even the worst sins, even the sins that no one knows about, those sins can be washed clean. You can be made white as snow. He came that we might be forgiven he came that we might be rescued from the wrath of God. If we got what we deserved, we would be condemned. We would die and go to hell forever, and that would be righteousness. That would be justice. But see, Christ was condemned in our place at the cross. What's happening at the cross is that Jesus was condemned in our place, drinking the cup of God's wrath that we might be forgiven. Jesus came that we might be at peace with God. There is war between God and man. Human beings have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against our creator, and there is not peace. Sinful people are enemies of a holy God and rightly fall under his wrath. But see, in Christ, we stand forgiven. In Christ, we stand righteous. We are clothed not with our own righteousness, but the very righteousness of God, which means we're at peace with God, that God is our Father. Jesus came that we might be reconciled to God. Because of our sin, our relationship with him has been broken. How can God, who is holy, have a relationship with sinful, rebellious people? Well, in Christ, our sins are dealt with, we're clothed with righteousness, and that relationship has been restored. Those who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're no longer outsiders. We're no longer enemies. We're children of God in Christ. Jesus came that we might possess 
eternal life, that we might live forever in his presence in the new heavens, in the new earth, with the people of God. And all of this has been accomplished in Christ through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And all of this is to be received by faith in Christ. We receive all that Christ has done for us. We receive justification. We receive reconciliation. We receive the peace of God. We receive forgiveness by faith in his promise. The Christian life from start to finish is a life of faith. We receive what God has done. We believe his promises. He says in Christ there's forgiveness. Christians believe that. The gospel says you cannot earn your way to God. Christians believe that. We rest in the work of Christ. To be in Christ is to be infinitely blessed. It is to be infinitely blessed. It is to be infinitely rich. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. Now, what do we do with this passage? I mean, it's a great story about God enters into this unilateral covenant with Abram and how Christ is the fulfillment of that promise to Abram that through you all the families on earth will be blessed. So what do we do, what do, we do with it? Well, there's, there are many points of application. I'm going to give you one. Here it is. Know and believe the promises of God. Know and believe the promises of God. I want you to imagine for a moment that walking with God is like climbing a mountain. So walking with God is like climbing a mountain. Here's a picture of a, of a mountain. If I was looking at this mountain... I would be like, where do I start? I don't even know what I would do. And I would have all these questions. What's the path up the mountain? What do I hold on to? Where do I put my feet? Is there a rope I can hang on to? Is there a rope that will catch me? And am I going to die? That's what I would be wondering if I'm going to climb up that mountain. And see, the word of God, the promises of God, answer all of these questions. The, the word of God in our walk with the Lord it's like a path. If you want to go to that next picture, it's like a path up the mountain. The Word of God lays out the way. The Word of God shows us where to put our feet. The promises of God show us what we are to hold on to. The promises of God promise that God will hold on to us and that we will make it up the mountain. And along the way, we will skin our knee. Along the way, we will twist our ankles. Along the way, we might get hit by some rocks. Along the way, many will wander. But this is the path. It's the path laid out in God's word. And we walk up that mountain by the grace of God, believing in the promises of God. I'm not talking about earning our salvation. I'm talking about what it looks like to walk with God. And so many people are trying to figure out how to walk with God apart from the word of God. So many people, they just want to wander up the mountain on their own terms, in their own way, apart from the word of God. But brothers and sisters, you cannot come to Christ in your own way. You cannot come to Christ on your own terms. You can't just make up what you want to do. The Lord Jesus Christ says the Christian life, the life of the disciple is a life of faith where you know and believe and trust and obey the word of God. So if you do not know the word of God, you cannot follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what can happen over time is, okay, we skip a day in the word of God, and then we skip a week in the word of God, and then we, stick, we skip a month in the word of God, and then we begin to think, okay, I can kind of do the Christian thing apart from the word of God. But you cannot. You cannot. 
If you are not in the word of God, if God's word is not in our souls, you aren't walking with him. You cannot walk with him. The only way to walk with the Lord is by faith in his word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, By these, his glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises. Why has God given us his promises? So that through them, through the promises of God, believing the promises of God, holding on to the promises of God, you may share in the divine nature. You do not have a divine nature. This is the nature of God. This is sanctification. This is becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you become more and more like Christ? By believing his promises. Holding on to his promises. And as you share in the divine nature, it says, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. There are two sources of motivation in the world. Your flesh or the, world, the, the desires of the flesh, your flesh, the desires of the flesh, and the promises of God. You will live according to your flesh, or you will live according to the promises of God. If you do not know the promises of God, you're not living according to the promises of God, therefore you're living in the flesh. Those are your options. We, walk by, we will either walk by faith, or we will walk by sight. We will lean on our own understanding, or we will trust God at the core of our being. Those are our options, brothers and sisters. We must hold on to God and his word. We must hold on to his promises. One of the greatest disciplines you can ever develop in the Christian life is studying his word, knowing his word, and then believing it. And as you believe it, by the grace of God, you become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So grab a hold of the promises of God. You know, I've talked to many Christians who have lived uh, the Christian life for many years, and the ones who are fruitful, the ones who are still passionate about knowing Christ are the people who have God's word in their heart. Like you, people who are fruitful, who love Christ, who have great passion for Christ, great passion for the church, great passion for the gospel, if you poke those people, do you know what comes out of them? The promises of God. The promises of God. And see, God has given us great promises. He has given us magnificent promises. In fact, we have better promises than God made to Abram. We have better promises. We are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. Have you ever thought about that before? In Christ, everything belongs to us. In Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, for all of eternity, we will reign with him over all things. In Christ, we're going to be with him not in a country, not a physical land called Israel. In Christ, we will be in the new heavens and the new earth forever. I mean, we have great promises. And so we must believe them. We must know them and hold on to the promises of God. And as we do that, he changes us. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that your word is 